0: Church, how are we tonight? Amen. Amen. Blessed is a good word. I love that last song. The story of our lives should be the gospel. Amen. There's a lot of things we are. There's a lot of stories we have to tell. There's a lot of life that we've experienced. There's a lot of wisdom that we can share. But at the end of the day, if somebody said, hey, sum up your life for me. Tell me about what's happened to you. My story and my song would be that Jesus Christ has become my Lord and Savior and in doing so he's raised me from the dead and I'm a different person today because of Jesus Christ I'm alive from the dead in Jesus Christ that's the story of my life and we pray that's the story of your life tonight amen we can accomplish any manner of good things but the best thing and the most important thing and the only permanent thing is whether or not we're in relationship with Jesus Christ a good relationship with Jesus Christ because everybody's in relationship with him. They don't know it. Everybody's got a relationship with him, but only those of us who are in Christ are in a good relationship and in a safe relationship. Amen? You can pretend he's not there, but he's there. I'm going to finish tonight the series called What to Make of It. We've been addressing some of what's going on in the world uh, from a Christian perspective, from a biblical perspective, and tonight we're going to finish this three-part series Um, The the message is titled, God and Government. Now, I I really wanted to call it Mountains, Molehills, and Mask Mandates, but I just didn't have the guts to do it. So I called it God and Government because it's going to be on YouTube and I don't want all the negative clicks and all that. So um, God and Government is going to be the title tonight. As a standalone message, it'll be fine. I want to recommend, if you haven't seen the other two, um, the first two in this series, the first one was called The Trademark. Um, get on YouTube and just search Eastland Life Church Metropolis trademark, and you'll find it. Um, that was the first one. Um, the second one was called Weight of the World, and we went to Isaiah chapter nine and we looked at the prediction that Jesus Christ would be born of a virgin, and we tied that to the Christmas story. And we talked about how the weight of the world is is really not on our shoulders. Amen. Because if you're like me, and you're probably not exactly like me, but if you're anything like me at all, you look at the world today and you look at the state of our government and understanding that the next three weeks in our government are going to be pivotal. In early January, there's going to be a vote happen in the state of Georgia and that vote will largely determine the direction our government will take for at least the next four, if not eight years. Now, we don't get overly political from up here and we're not going to tell you about what parties you should follow and what people you should listen to. What we're going to bring to you is the word of God. And we're going to help you understand what the Word of God teaches about these things. But it's important that we don't have our heads buried in the sand. It's important that we understand what's going on. And it's really important that we can be sure in ourselves, but also assure others in the world who are worried and afraid right now that God is on His throne, the weight of the government's on His shoulders, and there is a way to look at these things from a biblical worldview and from the perspective of God Almighty that can help us to separate the truth from the lies. And when you can know the truth, the Bible says that the result of knowing the truth will be that you're set free. And we don't have to be slaves to this culture. We don't have to be slaves to the current ideology. We don't have to be slaves to any of that because we are free in Jesus Christ and we are members first of his kingdom. Amen? All right. Hope y'all are still clapping in 15 minutes. Anytime you preach about government. Somebody's bound to disagree. So my goal tonight is not to share opinions and thoughts. Here's what Pastor Blake thinks about such and such. My goal is to go to the Word of God and let's just talk about it. So we can have these conversations in our community. Because church, our community needs to know how to respond to these things. Okay? So let's go to the Word of God. We're going to be in the book of Romans chapter 13. We're going to be in the book of Romans chapter 13. And I'm happy to preach from Romans 13 tonight. Because this scripture... In this chapter is one that's been quoted quite a bit this year. And in the life of the church, and in the life of the Christian, and especially in the life of the elders and pastors at your church, this has been a scripture that has weighed heavily upon us as we have figured out how to navigate 2020. And early this year, in the spring, when the edicts began to come down from some of our state officials that churches should no longer be meeting, Romans 13 was on our mind. And in fact, chances are, if you know of any pastor friends or you've got Christian friends whose churches were shut down or maybe are still shut down during this year because of what the government had decreed, chances are Romans 13 was the reason that they said, yes, we will follow that mandate. We will shut the churches down. Romans 13 was a scripture that was quoted to many of our membership team multiple times this year as reasoning that we should shut down. So this is very near and dear to our hearts. And it's very important because all Scripture is breathed by God. Amen? Romans 13 is just as true as John 3:16. There's not a Scripture in the Bible that is more important or less important than any other. In fact, I once heard it said this way. If God speaks, it always has equal authority. God will never speak less authoritatively on one moment than he does in another. Which is why anytime somebody says, Pastor Blake, God spoke to me and God told me, I always think to myself, Alright, be ready because it's going to be heavy. If God told you something, that's serious. When God speaks, it's serious. And that's, by the way, why we tend to believe God speaks through his word. Amen. Amen. Doesn't mean God can't speak to somebody personally, but primarily God has given us 66 books written over 1,500 years by 44 different authors. It never contradicts, and it always points to Jesus. That's where God hath said. So that's where we're going to go. But this scripture is incredibly important because... On at least a couple occasions, I've been told, hey, you guys at Eastland need to read Romans 13. My first reaction was, oh, I didn't know there was a Romans 13. I thought it was like the 13th floor of a hotel where it went from floor 12 to floor 14. I forgot 13, but of course that was just my sarcasm of which I had to repent and say, listen, I shouldn't talk like that. But Romans 13 is authoritative, and it is important, and we need to consider it prayerfully and dutifully as God's people. Romans 13, verse 1. Let every person, if that includes you, raise your hand. All right, so don't sit here and say, all right, this message didn't apply to me tonight. It's about all of us. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So you may think to yourself, does this apply to our government? Does our government exist? If it exists... Then, according to verse 1, it has been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God and an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. This is Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. And he gives us a couple extra verses about paying taxes. If you read those in verses 6 and 7, I want to encourage you, especially if you've not been paying your taxes, you need to read those. But you all seem like good tax-paying people. So we're going to focus on the first five verses, all right? Praise God, keep paying your taxes. So my first question when I come to Romans 13, verses 1 through 5, and God makes this declaration that, hey, if a government exists, I put it there. That's what God said. If it exists, I put it there. And Christians, all Christians, and all people are to be subject to these governments. My first question, and I bet your first question too, is what if the government is not doing what God put it there to do? That's naturally my first question. What if the government oversteps its bounds? What if the government isn't judging good and judging evil appropriately? What if government, instead of judging what is good and evil appropriately, has fallen victim of what we find in Romans chapter 1, which says that those who have bought into Satan's lies have been turned over to a debased mind, and they now promote what is evil as good and what is good as evil. I would make the argument that by and large, today, that is the type of government that is most prevalent in the world, and that is the type of government that we are under. It is a government that is progressively and more frequently sliding down a dangerous slope of calling good evil and evil good. Amen? That's what we see. So the man in me and the preacher in me And the rebel in me immediately wants to say, Well, God, if you put them there to do good and they're doing bad, then that now means I have the freedom to not be under their authority. That's really what I want to preach to you tonight. Man, we don't have to be under any authority. We can do this our way. But unfortunately, well, probably fortunately, unfortunately for my rebellious heart, we don't get an out. In fact, the message of Jesus was really specific about this. Jesus even preached once, and as he was preaching, he said, hey, imagine this, guys in the room, imagine that somebody slaps you across your right cheek. What do you do? Jesus did not say to do what is in all of our hearts motivated by all of our testosterone, right? (laughs) Slap them silly. If I'd been writing it, Is probably what I would have put. Thank God I wasn't given that authority. Because Jesus said, if they they slap you, you turn the other cheek. Now, that doesn't make sense to me. And I struggle to understand the good in that. But it's what he did. He turned the other cheek. And he didn't just say that, he lived it. In fact, when Jesus walked this earth, never once did he address the evil government that was... Ruling over his people. Not once. And when he did address them, it was never out of rebellion. In fact, when he was baited into addressing some of the injustices of the government from that day, remember when somebody said, Hey, why don't your uh, disciples pay their taxes, the temple tax, like everybody else? And Jesus provided the money for the tax to be paid, rather than addressing the injustice of a Roman government charging a Jewish person to go to their own temple. He simply paid the tax. Jesus was better than we are. Jesus is holier than we are. Jesus is more sanctified than we are. Jesus is more loving than we are. So this message tonight, at many levels, we're going to say, Amen, that's right, preach on. At other levels, we're just going to go, That doesn't feel right to me. And that's okay. Because that's what the Bible does. It confirms where we are right. And it also admonishes where we are wrong. I want to talk tonight about Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. And I want to talk about the biblical context. I want to talk about what was going on in that day. Because if we can understand where Jesus was speaking, if we can understand where Paul was coming from when he wrote Romans chapter 13, if we can sort of know what was happening in that day, then it may unlock some truths for us. So, for example, if Paul was speaking this to the church in Rome, and at the time the government was good and the government was just, then perhaps we could say, okay, it's easy for Paul to say this, it's easy for Jesus to say this at a time when the government was good. But in fact, we find the opposite. The government in that day was extremely corrupt. Let me give you some examples. At the time that this was written, the Jewish people were occupied by the Roman government, who was the most militaristic and dominant government of the day. There was heavy and unfair taxation on the Jews, And they longed for the day when their Messiah would come from heaven down to earth and wipe out the Romans so that they would not be under this taxation and this oppression. This is what they expected Jesus to do. It was full of corrupt politicians. In fact, if you remember, when Jesus was born... His family had to escape with him to Egypt for a couple of years until he was over the age of two because King Herod in that region had made a decree that all boys under the age of two had to be murdered just to prevent the possibility that the Messiah could come from that region. These were the type of politicians they were dealing with. There was severe slavery in the land. The the estimates are that in Rome there were three slaves to every free man. So significantly more slaves than there were free people in Rome, which is one of the reasons it was so powerful. It was operating on what seemed to be free labor. Severe slavery. Religious freedom was limited. Now, interestingly, Christianity was considered to be legal by the Roman Empire, but only under certain jurisdictions and only under heavy taxation. So there was a price to pay to be a Jew or to be a Christian. But religious freedom was very limited. And finally, when we look at the context of this, we also come to the fact that when we read our New Testament, we don't find a lot of instruction for how to deal with an evil and corrupt government other than the mandate that we come under its authority, which again strikes at the heart of America. In fact, if we look at what's happening today in our world, if we look at what's happening now, And we begin to address what's going on in our country. I would go so far as to say that subjectivity to an evil government just seems un-American to me. Subjectivity to a government that's doing wrong doesn't seem American. In fact, we could go so far as to say that America was born out of a people that refused to be subject to an evil government. That's where we came from. Now, thank God America is here. Amen? Amen. I will not buy into the lie that we are the most evil, corrupt nation in the world. Absolutely not. In fact, I would make the argument that for the people born between the year 1890, about 25 years after the Civil War had come to an end, for the people born in America from the year 1890 to the year 2000, I would say that that's about the most perfect 110 years of a government that you could be born under in human history. I would say that in that 110-year span, we have been the most justly governed, the most rightly ruled, the most appropriately free, and the most Christian that a nation could possibly be this side of eternity. I would say that America is the greatest country in the world, and I'm proud to be a part of it. And I've not lost hope in it, and I won't stop fighting for her. I'm proud to be here. So the idea that as our government sits on this seesaw between right and wrong and seems to be teetering the wrong way, where we are now moving as a government who is now legislating for sexual freedom, which is the trademark that Satan has entered into people and is now calling the shots in our culture. It's why the Bible calls him the prince of the power of the air. The very air we breathe has now been tainted by the effects of sin in our culture. As we watch our government start to slip away from the truths that it once held dear and now buying into the lie, my heart and my flesh tells me, It's time to revolt. It's time to rebel. It's time to fight. It's time to take up arms. That's what my soul tells me. And yet the Bible tells me in Romans chapter 13 that all governments have been instituted by God. All governments that exist have been instituted by God. And yet here we are at this political tipping point. Something that I think we face today something that I believe is happening today that is clouding our judgment, something that I think can be a risk to the church in America as we address what's happening and we try to figure out what to make of the day that we're in today, I think that there is a problem, not with the government primarily, but I believe that it's possible that the American church is sometimes indistinguishable from the American dream. That makes sense? From 1890 to the year 2000 was about the best 110 years a person could be born, and I think all of us in here fall within that span. Some of you may have been born after the year 2000. If you were, I'm jealous because it means you're younger than me, significantly. But that 110 years, I would dare say, spoiled us. I would dare say that the church in America, over the last 50 to 60 years especially, has been so tied in and so bought into the idea that God's plan for you and for me is that we would be free, that we would be rich, that we'd be comfortable, that we'd be happy, and anything that ever enters into our life that makes us not happy is wrong. Anything that would ever tell us that we all shouldn't be rich is wrong. Anything that would ever tell us that we should be uncomfortable must be by its very nature wrong, because those things are un american And as the church in America, many churches, I don't believe Eastland is this way, but many churches in America are so tied into this idea that we should just be free and prosperous and happy and we never say anything negative and we never think anything negative and we should be rich because God wants everybody to be rich and we should be healthy because God wants everybody to be healthy and if you're not rich, it's because you don't have enough faith and if you're not healthy, it's because you don't have enough faith and you just haven't claimed it and you haven't just received the gifts that God has for you. That ideology has so impregnated the American church with sin that we now stand on this precipice Kind of hanging off the side of it, wondering what happened and how God could somehow ever be a part of that. But the reality is being a Christian and being an American citizen, or being a Christian and being a Canadian citizen, or a Mexican citizen, or a European citizen is never the same thing. They are different kingdoms that we belong to. We are Americans secondarily, we are Christians primarily. But the two have become so intertwined that many people who don't understand the dividing line are struggling with what to make of today. And I'll say this finally in our current context when we look at what's happening in the world today at the impasse between government and the Christian life, I will say this, and I believe this very deeply and as as does our leadership team. Christians in America, and this is unique, okay? When the Bible was written, at no point, During that 1,500 year period from Genesis to Revelation, at no point did any of God's people have the opportunity to be a part of the government of the land that they were in like Christians do today. And the Bible doesn't address it because it wasn't happening. The Bible never addresses and says, hey, here's what you do in a democratic Republic, here's what you do when you have the right to vote. Here's what you do, Christian, when you have the right to run for office. The Bible never really gives us that, especially in the New Testament, because the New Testament Christians were too busy running for their lives. They weren't given the right to become Roman officials and to call the shots. And I believe this is very important because we would be missing it if we simply said, well, because the Bible is silent, we shouldn't even think about it or talk about it. Absolutely not. In fact, I believe a smart principle for how we interpret our Bible is that where the Bible is silent, we must use the rest of the Bible to help us think clearly on these things and to form beliefs that we don't hold others to because the Bible is not clear on it. Does that make sense? When we take something that the Bible is silent about and we make it a law, we've gone too far. When we take something that the Bible has been silent about and we say that every one of you should do it because Pastor Blake says you should do it, I've gone too far because the Bible doesn't say that every one of you should do it. But let me ask you this. Does the Bible say that we should seek to do good for all people as much as possible? Maybe not in those words exactly. But in general, a theme of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we will be salt and light to the world. We will be a purifying agent. We will be an irritating agent, we will be a sustaining agent, and we'll be a change agent. Absolutely. And we would be foolish not to consider the fact that while our government is teetering on the wrong side of morality, we still as Christians have the opportunity to be aware and to be involved and to be knowledgeable. And I believe that God has called people to do that. Because where there is opportunities to serve, God is empowering people to serve. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, I'm just going from memory, so don't quote me, okay? But it says, It's by grace that we've been saved, and that not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do something really specific. You know what it is? Good works that he has set beforehand for us. Should all of us become government officials? Probably not. But if God lays that on your heart, that you can become a Christian in a place where there is no light and you can have influence on not only the people around you, but influence on legislation that could serve other people, and to save lives and to embed lives, to give the church the freedom to act within a community, it would be foolish not to do so. I will not tell you that each of us have a responsibility to become politically engaged and involved, but I do believe we have a responsibility to know what's happening in our world, to love our neighbor as ourselves, And many of us may have the opportunity to do that in a position of authority. And there is a biblical precedent for that. I want you to see some examples throughout history of Christians and people of God who have used their positions to help better the pagan nations they were in. If you go to the book of Genesis, you find that Joseph was in Egypt. And from his position, Joseph was able... To be a judge and to be a king over a land that prospered under his leadership as a man of God. We see Joseph in Egypt. We see Daniel in Babylon. He was taken into captivity from his people into the pagan nation of Babylon. And he was told that he must defile himself with the trappings of that pagan nation. But because he made the decision not to do that, God put him in a position where he would impact not only those around him, but the nation as a whole. In fact, even the king, upon Daniel's determination not to defile himself and to remain a holy man of God, even the king's mind was changed about the God of the universe in that time. And he was in a very high position of authority. Nehemiah in Persia was able to use his influence to help get the walls of Jerusalem rebuilt under the direction of a pagan nation. Fast forward in history, we can acknowledge even today that states in America who are under Christian governors and authority figures tend to have less crime and more moral laws and legislation. You can look it up. According to historian Alvin Schmidt, Christian involvement and influence in government has also led to the outlawing of infanticide, the killing of infants, child abandonment, and abortion in Rome in AD 374. Within 350 years of Jesus' ministry, Rome began to change its laws because of the influence Christians were having on it. They outlawed battles to the death for Roman gladiators in the year 404, again because of the influence of Christians in Rome. Polygamy was banned. Granting of property rights and legal protections for women in the Western world have been driven primarily by Christians. Public education in Europe, which was unavailable prior to the 16th century was the working of Christians in that territory who sought to educate children. Slavery in Rome, Ireland, most of Europe, and the United States was abolished primarily under the direction and the admonition of Christian groups and Christian people. Now the history books and definitely the media today will not tell you that. The media will tell you that the church and Christianity is as paternalistic and evil as any other institution in the world. But the fact is, if you know your history, in the mid-1830s, two-thirds of people who advocated for the abolition of slavery in America were preachers who were coming under persecution from local government authorities because they were preaching from the pulpit on the evils of slavery. Two out of three. Slavery in America no longer exists today, in large part because of the effort of people like you and me who are aware of what's going on in the world, and we seek to do good for as many people as we possibly can. We have a right in America today. Don't know how long we'll have it. And we have the right biblically to affect change in the communities that we are in. But it requires a choice. On December 26th, exactly 29 years ago today, some of you may remember this. This was a really important day in history. Who remembers what happened 29 years ago today? If you were like me and you were born in the late 80s, this, you won't remember it. But December 26, 1989, something really important happened. The Berlin Wall fell and the Soviet Union was toppled. Historians say that it was the uprising of Christian people, not violent uprising, not rebellious uprising, but an uprising of righteousness and unity within the atheistic government of the Soviet Union that eventually led the people of the Soviet Union to lose confidence in the government, and the government was toppled peacefully. It ended the Cold War, and Christians were very, very involved. So church, I say tonight that the fact that Romans 13 verses 1 through 5 tells us that we are to be subject to the government does not mean that we can't be salt and light to the government. It doesn't mean that we can't impact change in the community that we're in. And it sure doesn't mean that we should bury our heads in the sand and just say, you know what, God's in control, so it doesn't matter what I do. If the Bible taught that, then the Bible would not tell us that people will only get saved if we preach the gospel to them. The Bible says, how blessed are the feet of those who teach the word of God. Because if nobody goes to these lost people, how will they know Jesus? How will they become saved? If things are to change in our communities, it's going to have to come from God. Amen? God's in control. It's all about God. It's all from God. Amen? But the second that we take that to mean that you and I can stop thinking and we can stop praying and we can stop acting is the moment that God will turn His back on what we do. Because God is not interested in a church that will speak the Word of God and hear the Word of God but not act on the Word of God. The book of James says that the people who do that are deceiving themselves. You hear the word, you speak the word, but you don't do the word, you're lying to yourself. Think you're a Christian because of something you say? No, it's a holy life that is the evidence of the transformation of the Holy Spirit in the human heart that is evidence of a salvation that is real. We should be more active, more joyful, more knowledgeable, more reliable... More active than the person down the road who's scared to death about the country that they once loved and are now watching slip away from them. May we be active and may we be prayerful people. Let's go to what the Bible says. I've got five points because that's what every good sermon has. And I'll try to move through them quickly. We've talked about what was going on in the Roman world at the time that this was written. We've talked about what's going on in our world today. With all that in mind, let's see what the Bible has to say. Number one, God institutes all governing authorities. They are all instituted by God. Proverbs 21.1 says that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Job 12, 23 says, He makes nations great and He destroys them. He enlarges nations and He disperses them. Now, if you're like me, you probably ask yourself, why would God institute a government that is not just and upright? Why would God put into place governments that are evil? Why would God put into place a president that does not follow the word of God? Why would God put a king in authority who does not follow God? Why would God let His people be subject to evil rulers? I want to remind you, number one we don't get the full picture God does not tell us all of his secrets God does not tell us why bad things happen and that's one of the most difficult questions that every Christian must face why would God do that why would God allow for that we don't have all the answers but we can tell you this God's original plan for his people the plan that he told them was that they would not be ruled by earthly kings that they would be ruled by God himself And in 2 Samuel, when the people cried out for a king, 1 Samuel, when people cried out for a king, they said, God, we want a king like all the other nations of the world have. God warned them. He said, listen, you're going to get a king, and here's what he's going to do. He's going to lead you the wrong way. And God offered to govern them directly, but that wasn't good enough for them. You say, how stupid they must have been to have wanted an earthly king when God was willing to govern them directly directly. Church, do we not often fall into the same camp when God gives us specific direction and we say, well, you know what, God, I hear what your word says, but I've got ideas too. And we kind of do our thing when we know it's not right. And we sort of float through life when we know God's given us a purpose. Church, the reason that we have this today is because of sin. Sin has entered into the world, and God has made a practice of using sinful people and sinful situations In order to bring about righteousness. And my guess as to why God would put in an evil government. Is because when you set the church up in front of a backdrop of darkness. And in the midst of an evil world and an evil government and evil rulers and evil legislation. And hurting and broken people. The world looks at the church shining brightly from its position of authority and love and grace. And the church has an opportunity to show people the light. The church has the opportunity to show people the light. That's my guess. That's my guess as to why God does it. But the fact is, all governments are instituted by God. Point number two. Christian obedience to God is measured in our obedience to authority. Our obedience to God is typically done through proxy. It's often in our obedience to other people. Now, when God tells me something directly, I try to be obedient. Amen? God ever told you to do something? You ever been in prayer and God says, hey, this is what you're to do? That happened to me earlier this year in the summer. I prayed and I felt God speak to me. It's like I had this urge of a decision that I needed to make, and I made it, and it was the right decision. When we read God's Word and God tells us what to do through His Word, we do it. When another person tells me what to do, it's a different story. I don't love to be told what to do by other people. Anybody else like that? You don't love being told what to do and how to do it? I'm kind of the same way. But Romans 13.2 says that whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. And this not only applies to the world of government. You may say, well listen, I'm subject to the governing authorities. I, I pay my taxes. i come in line. I don't... Raise up rebellions. And and honestly, church, for the most part, I think we are pretty compliant people. I look around and we are basically doing what the government tells us to do. But it's not just about the government. In fact, all authorities in our life, God has put there. And you find in Colossians chapter 3, it says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward... It is the Lord Christ you are serving. So your boss at work, maybe your boss at home, hopefully you don't have a boss at home. Hopefully you do it as a team. Jim, you do whatever Mindy says, okay? (laughs) All right. You serve her as if you're serving the Lord. Whatever authority God puts in our life, we are to come under it. And we serve it. Not because we're serving people. You say, well, my boss doesn't deserve that. He's not a good guy, or she's not a good gal, or our government doesn't deserve it because it's not a good government. That's not the point. The point is that our obedience to them is obedience to God. The way we serve is service to God. Remember when Jesus said it this way? He said that when you serve the least of these, who are you really serving? You're serving me, is what Jesus said. The way that we serve those in authority and the way that we serve those under us both point to who we are truly serving. And a rebellious streak that says, I will not be subject to any authority, I will do life my way and my way alone is indicative of a heart that is not subject to God. Number three, prayer is our primary agent of political change. You say, Pastor Blake, how do we affect change in the world if we are not happy with the way things are going in their political and our social life. How do we affect change? I believe that God will raise up people who will get into positions of authority. I believe there are some in this very church who are being called to positions of authority within our civil system. But for most of us, I believe that prayer is our weapon. Prayer, I believe, is our primary agent of political change. And I think that because in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, Paul writes to Timothy, and he urges him, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, including kings and those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. It's what Paul said we should do. We should pray for those who are in authority. I think it's interesting that we pray so that we may live quiet and peaceful lives. You know what that means? The best type of government... And I don't think I'm getting out of line here. I think this is right here from the scripture. We pray for those in authority so we can live quiet, peaceful lives. You know what the church should truly want from the government? We should not want the government to do our job for us. We should not want the government to be responsible for feeding the poor, housing the homeless, taking care of the sick. We really shouldn't be seeking for the government to try to keep us all healthy as if death isn't an inevitability for everyone who's ever lived. We really don't need the government to play its hand in economics and try to make everything work out right to bring about some utopia. You know what we should pray for? God, give us a government that will leave us alone. Give us a government that will rule justly, call evil evil, call good good, promote good, punish evil, and let the church be the church so that we can live quiet, peaceful lives. Church, we aren't called to be rebellious. We don't want to be rebellious. It is is not in our nature to be rebellious. And I say that because Jesus was not rebellious. Jesus came under the authority of God Almighty, but he also came under the authority of a legal system that was positioned against him. And, And rather than rebel, he gave his life up so that you and I could be free. And what we should be praying for is that God would guide our leaders not to provide for us, not to do our jobs for us, but to do their jobs... So that we can do our jobs. That's the prayer. That's the prayer. Number four. Subjection to government is secondary to subjection to God's kingdom. Now I think we'll get some more amens here. Because I think this is where our heart is. We are subject to the government even when we don't like what they do. We are subject to the government even when we disagree with the choices that they make. We are subject to the government even when we disapprove of the government, but there is a line, amen, there is a line that we don't cross. We recognize that subjection to our earthly governments will only go as far as they do not impede on our subjection to his government, the one that's on his shoulders, the one that we are primary citizens of. Subjection to government is secondary to subjection to God's kingdom. Think about the apostles in Acts chapter 5, verse 27. It says that they who were the rulers and authorities at the time, it says they brought the apostles in and they made them stand before the Sanhedrin where the high priests interrogated them. And they said, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, speaking of the name of Jesus. They were in trouble because they wouldn't stop preaching about Jesus. It says, we gave you strict orders not to teach in his name. Now, if all we knew was Romans 13, we might say, Well, listen, Romans 13 says we'd be in subjection to the governing authorities, and the governing authorities are telling us not to preach in the name of Jesus, so we better keep our mouths shut. But a precedent was set in Acts chapter 5 because the apostles responded, We must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. We obey the government, and we are subject to the government, until the government tells us to disobey God in which we will rise up and we'll stand. When Daniel stood among a crowd of his peers and the king stood before him and said that at the sound of the trumpet, you're going to drop the knee and you're going to worship this image that I've set before you, Daniel who had been subject to the government, Daniel who had been a good soldier, Daniel who had been obedient to those in authority above him in the Babylonian government, Daniel drew a line that day. And he said, you may throw me in that fire, and if you do, my God, he can save me if he chooses to. But even if he doesn't save me, know this day we will not bow before that statue. We will be obedient, we'll be good citizens and good soldiers, we'll pay our taxes, we'll live quiet lives, we'll be peaceful people. But if the government steps over the line and says you can't preach, we'll preach. If the government steps over the line and says you may not meet, we'll meet because the bible tells us to meet it says don't forsake together gathering with other believers the bible doesn't say that you can just be a christian on your own by yourself in your home the bible doesn't say that you can worship god just as freely and easily in your home as you can with other believers the bible says don't forsake gathering together with other christians so if the government says hey for the good of all people why don't you forsake gathering together with other believers we'll say no We're going to gather together with other believers. And we do not believe that's in opposition to Romans 13.5 because we have a biblical precedent for where our subjection stops. And we will pray, and we will do so earnestly and not pridefully. We will meet together, not out of rebellion, but out of obedience to the government that this government is subject to. Amen? These government institutions are secondary to the kingdom of God and I'll finish with this last one all earthly kingdoms are secondary to God's kingdom all earthly kingdoms are secondary to God's kingdom God's kingdom and I say this I think with the most somber heart because when God established his kingdom on earth through Jesus Christ And Jesus Christ instituted the church. And he told Peter that upon the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he was going to build the church and the gates of hell wouldn't prevail against the church. God's intention for the church, he made clear to us in Matthew chapter 28, when Jesus told us that we are to go into all nations and preach the gospel. To teach people what Jesus taught us. And to baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I believe that if Jesus were here today, and I can't speak for Jesus, I can only tell you what his word says. But on the authority of the word of God, I believe that if Jesus were here, and we were to say, Jesus, what do we do about the day that we're in? How do we address the injustices of our government? I believe that Jesus would have answers for us, but I believe that Jesus' primary message would be about his kingdom, not this one. I believe that Jesus would point back and say, Pastor Blake, I appreciate your zeal for being salt and light in the American community and in the Massac County community and in the Hospital addition community. I'm not going to get any more specific than that because I don't want you all knocking on my door appreciate your zeal, but are you as zealous for my kingdom as you are for this kingdom? I believe that if Jesus were to come preach to us tonight, he would preach to us not primarily the importance of setting up an earthly government that would be just and perfect. I believe he would preach to us the importance of understanding that this life is very short. This life is very short, and each of us are going to die. Nobody is going to get out of this thing alive unless Jesus comes back really, really soon, and we pray He does. I believe that Jesus would be very clear that while what happens on this earth is important, it is temporary, and it will all fade away. And no matter what systems we can set up on this earth to be as perfect as we can make them, they are all going to die when Jesus comes back and He judges this earth. It's all going to pass away. You don't read the book of Revelation and find America, you don't read the book of Revelation and find a kingdom on earth that all other kingdoms become subject to, what you find is that Jesus comes back to earth and he finalizes his kingdom. And he judges evil once and for all. In church, the Bible is very clear that those who have been put into positions of authority who have abused that authority are especially subject to God's judgment. The Bible speaks It woe be it to those who abuse their power and take from the weaker in order to strengthen the stronger. Politically, they're going to be subject to that. I believe if Jesus were here tonight, he would ask me, he'd say, Pastor Blake, and again, I'm I'm not speaking for Jesus, this is just my heart. I believe that if Jesus could address me and address my concerns and fears for the day in which we were in, I believe his challenge to me would be not to seek this kingdom. I believe it would be to seek his. In fact, I believe this because even Jesus himself in John 18, when he stood before Pilate, Pontius Pilate, curator of that area in Rome, Jesus knew that he was facing down certain death. He was facing his crucifixion. And Pilate asked Jesus, he said, Describe your kingdom. If you're a king, describe your kingdom. And Jesus was silent, but after submerging from Pontius Pilate, Jesus finally responded. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. And if it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Pilate says, you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth that everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Do you know where Jesus' reign happens on this earth tonight? The kingdom that Jesus spoke about in Matthew chapter 6 when he preached a sermon on the mount and he said don't seek first the kingdom of this earth. Don't worry about all these things. But he said seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. They'll be taken care of. The kingdom he spoke of is the kingdom that rules in the hearts of Christian people. God is not looking for a Christian nation. God will institute His own Christian nation when He is ready. And He is getting ready. He will institute it. And he will rule and reign on the earth forever that he creates. The new heavens and the new earth. He will be the governing authority. He will be the one calling shots. And all of us will live under perfect subjection to his perfect rule. And there will be no evil to judge because he will have already judged it and taken care of it. But tonight in this world, the kingdom that Jesus is primarily seeking after is not the one that would make our country the best place it could be. It would be the one that would change the heart of the person person from death into life and from disobedience into obedience. So when we think about what to make of all this, we recognize the three things we've talked about. Number one, we can tell the truth from the lie. There's a trademark. You can see it. You can find it. You want to know the truth, you can find it. Jesus says, those who seek me will find me if they seek me with all their heart. You can see the lie. All those who promote Sexual freedom in America, they're promoting the lie. They bought the lie. You can see it. We understand that Jesus came into this world as a Savior to save us from the coming wrath of God against unrighteousness and against sin. And we now tonight, in the name of Jesus and by the grace of Jesus, are free people even amidst an oppressing government. We are free people because Jesus is on our side and he's now for us. And the weight of the world is on his shoulders, not on mine, not on yours. But finally, tonight, we recognize that this kingdom on earth is subject to his kingdom in heaven. And the question isn't how to fix this kingdom, it's whether or not you're going to let Jesus fix you.